The words that we just sang are certainly challenging words. I'm yours, completely yours. The old hymn, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. But it always struck me as odd, and I even looked on the slide this morning to see, most hymn books name that hymn, take my life and let it be. Now think about that for a minute. That, that is kind of the attitude we often have. Take my life and let it be alone. Let it be my life. You let it alone. Let it be, Lord. But in reality, God has called us to surrender what we have to Him. That goes against everything in our culture. I mean, if you look around on the international scene or on our national politics or you look at labor negotiations that we're all too familiar with or you look at sports, the focus is generally, I'm going to get mine. I want what is mine and I will hang on to it. So I brought a friend along with me this morning. It's been a while since he has been here, but I think he typifies that kind of modern thinking. Some of you remember him. Get your hand on my cookie jar. Right? Isn't that the way we usually think? Get your hand on my cookie jar. Get your hand out of my cookie jar. Because those cookies belong to me. Get your hand out of my stuff. Because my stuff belongs to me. Jesus had a lot to say about that attitude, especially to those of us who are his followers, who claim to be Jesus' followers. Be the church means that we are entrusted stewards, that it's not about us, that we are servants, that we are stewards. And in fact, if you've been following along in the devotional guide for this capital campaign, This whole last week has been about the fact that God has entrusted us with various things for His glory, not just for us. And in Luke chapter 12, and I invite you to turn there in your Bibles or on your electronic devices, uh, beginning at verse 13, Jesus talks about that. In fact, what He shows us in the, the kind of setting and then the story, the parable that He tells us, is that it's not easy to be an entrusted steward. That there are obstacles that are really part of our humanity, part of our fallenness, that that cause us to wrestle. So the story begins with verse 13. Jesus has just finished teaching, or maybe he's still teaching and gets interrupted. Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Tell him to give me my stuff. And in that setting, we begin to see the very first obstacle. Because too often, we are wrapped up in getting more. We think that that's the goal of life. That's what this brother wants. He wants more. He wants his brother to give him more of the inheritance. We think somehow that that life is all about possessing a lot. And so this man comes to Jesus. He hears Jesus teaching. And then he cries out, Jesus, side with me. 
And that was not uncommon in one sense, because Jesus was looked upon by most of the people as a good rabbi, a good teacher. And the rabbis of that age often would settle disputes between families, between inheritors. And so this man cries out to Jesus, help me get my stuff. But he's really missed what's happening here. Because go back a few verses and notice what Jesus has just been talking about. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus is talking to his followers and he's saying, you can expect persecution. But when persecution comes and they drag you into court, don't worry about it. God will help you. The Spirit will teach you what to say. And this man in the crowd, that goes right over his head. All he hears is courts, authorities. Oh, yeah, I need Jesus to help me get my stuff. He misses Jesus' heart. He misses Jesus' point. Which is probably why Jesus speaks to him rather harshly. Look at verse 14. But he said to him, man, if we are translating it today, we might say, hey, buddy, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? My job here is not to be Judge Judy or to be Judge Mathis or any of the other judges that are out there on court TV. Jesus says, I didn't come to settle these kinds of disputes. And in fact, here's my thesis statement. Because of what you have said, I'm going to shift my subject now, and I'm going to talk to you about something different. And in verse 15, Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Continually watch out, Jesus says, for this insatiable desire that is part of our humanness, it's part of our brokenness, it's part of our sinfulness. That insatiable desire for more. That's what we often think life is all about. In fact, there was a billionaire a number of years ago who was being interviewed by somebody and, and the man said to him, look, you, you've got this new project going to accumulate more money and you've got all this money. How much more do you need? The billionaire looked at him and said, one dollar more. It's always one dollar more than what I have now. And that's our human brokenness. We think we just got to keep collecting and collecting and accumulating and getting more and more and more. But Jesus says life isn't about an abundance of possessions. Life is not about how much you have. And he'll come back to that thesis as he gets to the end of this section. But first he tells a story, a parable. And he tells it to point out the fact that we think life is all about possessing a lot for ourselves. After all, it is my cookie jar, right? It's all about me and getting stuff for me. And this parable that Jesus tells illustrates how wrong it is. Look with me at verse 16. And he told a parable to them, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? 
And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The problem is not that this man is rich. That's not what the issue is. The problem is not how he got his riches, apparently through legitimate means. His land produced well, probably not for the first time. The problem is this man's attitude, his outlook toward those riches. Because in verses 17, 18, and 19, there are eight first-person verbs about what he's going to do. And there are four other uses of my and me, The ESV has five, but in the original there's four. So that means in three verses, there are 12 references to himself, that it's all about him. He is entirely self-centered. He's going to eat, drink, and be merry, selfish enjoyment. In fact, notice who he talks to. He thought to himself, and then he says, I will say to my soul. So God and his neighbor aren't even on this man's radar because it is, he is entirely self-focused. It's all about him. It's all about accumulating more for his own sake. He's already rich. And then he has a bumper crop and no room to store it. But he has no thought of other people because stuff is his idol. He worships it. He trusts in it. But his focus is earthbound. And it's short Cited because verse 20 is coming, though he doesn't know it. So Jesus warns us, if we're going to be entrusted stewards, we need to be aware of the fact that too often we slide into this very human idea of getting more and more and more for ourselves. Mark Twain famously said, civilization is a limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. A limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. You see what he's saying? What would he say today with the whole advertising industry that is built on convincing us that what we don't have, we really need? So that we buy it and eventually we have to rent a storage unit. And if you have one, I'm not slamming you, but... Often we rent and then we store all of this stuff that we never use because we thought we needed it. And the advertisers convinced us that we needed it. We bought into the idea that when we get a raise, when we get more money, we just need to accumulate more stuff. We need to raise our lifestyle instead of realizing that God blesses us So that we can care for our family. That's a biblical principle. We ought to care well for those in our family. Our immediate family and sometimes our extended family. God blesses us to do that and he blesses us so that we then in turn can be a blessing to other people. And this man has no thought of that whatsoever. Do you and I? Do I take joy in giving? Am I learning generosity? Am I growing in my generosity? Now, Pastor Josh has challenged us over the last couple of weeks to be people of love, 
And love is self-sacrificing. It's laying down ourselves for others. And those of us who understand that we're called to love and we're called to a stewardship have to wrestle with what that looks like. But I'm probably talking to some folks in here or watching online that your credit cards are so maxed out, you're so deeply in debt that you can't help other people. In fact, your life is absorbed in trying to pay off that which shows just how much we've bought into what our culture sells us. Somebody said, and I googled trying to find out who and couldn't, so somebody said, you've got to have stuff to live, but you don't have to live for stuff. And very often, certainly this man in the parable, we live for stuff. So how does this relate then to our capital campaign? I think part of it is that there is always a danger for churches to become inward, to become self-focused, to make it all about what we want and what we like and what we need. It's one of the reasons I think that our mission statement has arrows that point out to remind us that we're to be looking outside beyond ourselves, so that we can develop fully devoted followers of Christ for the glory of God. And as we talk about this capital campaign, we're not planning to build a building to store all our grain. I thought it was kind of ironic as I worked on the passage. This guy's building buildings, and we're talking about a building. But it's not so we can accumulate grain, so we can store away stuff. It's so that we can reach out. Because in our drive radius, there are about 30,000 households with children 18 or under. And 40% of the households in that drive radius go nowhere to church on a regular basis. That's our mission field. And God has entrusted Berean with a rich heritage of children's ministry. In a sense, you could say with a stewardship of a great children's ministry. And in a sense, our barns are overflowing. If you were here Tuesday night for Trunk or Treat, you saw our barns overflowing as we had over 1,200 guests come through. I had our people working, about 1,400 people in this building. If you go into our children's ministry and you look at what's going on in Awana, we have, as you heard Pastor Jim say, the largest Awana attendance we have ever had. Action Day Camp is is expanding. Our nurseries are constantly filled with babies. And, And we have this stewardship of ministry when a lot of churches are cutting back on what they're doing for children. Maybe doing one big thing on Sunday morning and that's all they're doing. So who's going to reach those children that are outside of this church today but should be inside it tomorrow. As you heard from Pastor Jim and Karen, this new facility will allow us to bring all of our children into one location, eight new classrooms and a a large meeting room. And it will allow us for security, better security, dedicated bathrooms for children. And it will give us an area of excellence What I have noticed in Portage, particularly, because that's where I live, is that parents expect excellence when it comes to their children. That's why every school levy in Portage passes. And so we bring them here and we want them to experience excellence as well. Now, if this man in the parable had said, you know, I'm going to build bigger barns 
so that I can store my grain to minister to the poor in my community, to reach out to my neighbors. The parable would have ended very differently, but obviously Jesus is telling the story and he's making a different point. Because what he wants us to remember is that too often we who have this opportunity to minister to other people are wrapped up in ourselves, are wrapped up in getting more. So Jesus goes on with the story explaining and he reveals a second obstacle to you and me being entrusted stewards. And that is too often we view what we have as ours. After all, it's my cookie jar, right? We forget that we are stewards. We forget that we're just managers and we think that we're owners. This man forgot that. He thought everything that was being produced was his for his own selfish use. We looked a few weeks ago in 1 Chronicles 29 at the reality that that everything we have has been entrusted to us by God. We just sang that in a few of the songs that we sang. And yet so often we forget. And, And then we think that we earned what we have and we deserve what we have. That's what this man in the parable thought. He said, I will say to my soul, soul you have. It's yours. You earned it. You deserve it. There is no gratitude expressed by him to God, the God who provided those crops. We think we earned it. We think we deserve it. We we think that somehow it will provide enjoyment and security long term. Now, it does provide sometimes short-term enjoyment. This guy is going to enjoy the good life. He's going to eat, drink, be merry. And that word merry is interesting because the root is a word you hear in our own English, euphoria. He's got a party. It's going to be a great time. He's going to enjoy life for many, many years, he says. And that fits the slogans of our day. You know, you only go around once in life. Grab for all the gusto. You deserve a break today. Have it your way. Buy this because you're worth it. This man thinks that he has many years and enough to live to enjoy it. Now, let me quickly say, enjoying life is not wrong. It's not bad. But it cannot be our ultimate goal. Because the question is, where is God in the equation? Our lives are not defined by pursuing pleasure. If you want a good picture of that, go read the book of Ecclesiastes this afternoon and notice what Solomon says about having it all and yet life is empty. Often we get so caught up in life here and now that we forget that eternity is ahead. That stuff is given to us to invest for God and to use to bless people, to use it for eternal principles and eternal purposes. Ivorin Ball says, that which you cannot give away, you do not possess. It possesses you. And I thought of that statement kind of convictingly 
as I have been over the last several weeks, divesting myself of some of my library, having promised Peggy that I would not bring home all of my books when I retire. But I got to tell you, it's kind of painful sometimes. And I thought, I think that means that some of these have possessed me instead of me possessing them. So as I've given some away and I've listed them on eBay, it's like, okay, I can let go. What is it that you possess that you don't really possess? It possesses you. That car, that house, that collection of whatever. It's interesting that we think things will provide us with enjoyment and security long term, but they don't. Because we forget that nothing ultimately belongs to us. Not even our lives. That we are simply entrusted stewards. To this point in the story, not knowing the end, though most of you do, but if you were hearing this for the first time, you might be thinking, wow, I'm kind of envious of that guy. He's a really shrewd and smart businessman. Why? He's made more than he even has room to store. What a great life. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, but God said to him, fool, fool. A fool is a person who does not grasp the whole point of life. Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? That word required is actually a banking term. God is saying, you fool, tonight I'm calling in the loan of your life because it never belonged to you. I'm calling in the loan of your life, and then all that you've lived for, who's going to get that? And so this man thinks he's a master, but he's really a servant, accountable to God for his very life. He thinks he has many years ahead, but God's in charge and says to him, this night, it's emphatic, your life is called into account. It's like this rich man is playing a game of musical chairs And he's walking around thinking, I've got this. And suddenly the music stops and there's no chair left for him to sit in because there's no relationship with God. That's why he's a fool. He's a fool because he has invested his whole life into stuff that isn't ultimately his. It was all given by God. I think that's why Jesus deliberately says in verse 16, the ground produced an abundance This man didn't produce it. The ground did. God blessed it. And now in verse 20, it's all going to be left behind. And I think he's playing off how the story started. Remember the man saying, hey, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus is saying in this parable, you leave it all behind and then who's going to fight over it? Whose will it be? It's not going to be yours anymore. See, we don't really own anything. We just use it as stewards for a brief time. This is not a rhetorical question. How many of you have ever played Monopoly? That's most of us, all right? Long game, right? But the point of it is to get a Monopoly, to own all the property, to get all the money, to have park place and boardwalk and put motels on it and charge people exorbitant rates and gain it all for yourself and win the game. But as John Ortberg famously reminded us in his book, at the end of the game, 
It all goes back in the box. At the end of your life, nothing you think you've owned is ultimately yours. It all goes back in the box. See, the second obstacle to faithful stewardship is that too often we view what we have as ours. The problem is not this man's riches. The problem is this man's self-centered, self-reliant heart that has no room for God. And so back up to verse 20 with me again. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And then Jesus returns to his thesis statement. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So you go back to verse 13, when this man cries out for more money, Jesus knows more money's not going to do anything if his heart isn't right with God. So anyone who lays up treasure for himself instead of being rich toward God is a fool. That's God's verdict. That's the bottom line. The tragedy of the story is not that this man dies right at the height of his wealth and leaves it all behind. The tragedy of the story is that this man dies and is spiritually bankrupt. He has no relationship with God. And death comes and it strips away all the trappings of wealth and shows that he is bankrupt before God. So what does it mean to be rich? toward God. Jesus doesn't really say in this passage, though he explains a little bit in the verses that follow, but it begins, it begins with knowing God personally. So that's the question I would ask you this morning. Do you know God? Do you have a personal relationship with him through Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins and placed your trust in what Jesus did when he died on the cross? Instead of what you can do or what you own. If you say, no, I've never done that, then, then you are, God says it, not me, you're a fool. Because you may have everything this world has to offer. But if you aren't rich toward God, you're a fool. It begins with knowing him. And if you don't know him, right where you're seated today, you can simply bow your head and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't earn your favor. I trust in what Jesus did on the cross for me. Save me. And he will. And we'd love to talk to you afterwards about that. But you say, I've done that, Pastor. What does it mean to be rich toward God? It means you're building a relationship with him, not an empire here. And that's a huge distinction. And it impacts how we make decisions. So you're offered a job promotion but that promotion and the huge raise that goes with it means you have to work every Sunday. You say, no, there's something more important. Not only in a legalistic sense, but in the sense that I know I need to be together with God's people and I need to cultivate my relationship with Him and that is far more important than all that I can amass in treasure. Because it's not about laying up treasure for me, it's about being rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? It means that we use the resources that he's entrusted to us to serve him and others. I just read recently that 
on average, the average giving of Christians in the United States is 2.5% of their income to the church. Most of you have been around church long enough to know that the Old Testament guideline was 10%, which certainly ought to be at least our New Testament guideline, 2.5%. During the Great Depression, one of the worst financial times our nation has known, the average giving by Christians to the church was 3.3%. It was higher then than it is today. Being rich toward God means saying, you know what? I'm going to give to God first, and I'm going to trust Him to meet my needs. And you know, if the average is 2.5, and you have people who are giving 10 or 15%, that means there are people who are giving next to nothing. Being rich toward God means that we aren't relying on our stuff and our money for our security. In fact, Jesus is going to go on in the rest of this passage to say, we shouldn't be worrying about tomorrow. Doesn't mean we shouldn't prepare. I'm not saying don't save for the future. But he's saying that's not where our hope is. Our security is in trusting God. Being rich toward God means we're generous in giving back what God has given to us, to him. And so he will say in, in the end of this section, seek his kingdom, seek God's kingdom and these other things that you need, they'll be added. Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. There's our security, folks. It's not in your retirement fund. It's not in the stock market, thank the Lord. It's not in anything except what God will give us, His kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys, and the stocks don't go down every day. Oh, it doesn't say that, does it? But it could if he were living today. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What is our heart attitude toward stuff? Say, well, can I buy a new house to God's glory? Can I, can I buy a car to God's glory? Can I invest in schooling or put money away for retirement to God's glory? Yes. Because those are things God has instructed us to care for, but it's about our heart. And do we even ask those questions? Does God want me to do this with this money that he's entrusted to me? See, spending decisions are spiritual decisions. Because we are entrusted stewards of God. So that relates, obviously, to our capital campaign as we think about it. Because we're building for the future. We're investing for God's work here, now, and down the road. And so we're asking that all of us think and pray before God about what He wants us to do. Because it's His money anyway. And to think about sacrificing in some way over these next three years. Some of you may be saying, well, that's easy for you to say. You're not going to be here for three years. And you're right. That's why there, there's that part B, which you can give a one-time gift. And Peggy and I have been talking and praying about that. We've made our commitment. And we're taking some money we were going to use for something else and actually taking some of the money I, I'm getting from selling my books. And we're giving it toward this campaign because we believe in it. So I encourage you in anticipation of next week, Commitment Sunday, to pick up a packet, 
to talk to your spouse if you have one, to pray about it, to think about it, to pray some more about it, and decide above your regular giving what you believe God wants you to do over these next three years or a gift now. And then fill out the card and bring it back next Sunday. We would like to have commitments that would allow us to say, you know, we're going to raise that money over the next three years, so we're going to move ahead with plans. We're going to bring completed plans to the congregation for a vote on up or down. Do we move ahead on this or not? And then hopefully move ahead with that building in the near future. But the bottom line is not the capital campaign, folks. I, I, I need to talk about that today, but I don't like to talk about it. I want to talk about what God is saying in his word. What he's reminding us is that we are entrusted stewards. But that being a good manager of God's things, being a good steward of God's things is not easy. Because too often we get wrapped up in what our culture, our world, our humanity tells us. And we think we need more. And what we have is ours. And we've got to hold and cling to it. And our priorities get all out of whack. I've read, I haven't been able to verify it, so you can take this as true or apocryphal. But I've read that there is in a museum in Deadwood, South Dakota, a note that was inscribed by a prospector. It was found in the desert. It says this, I lost my gun. I lost my horse. I'm out of food. The Indians are after me. But I've got all the gold I can carry think there's a problem with the priorities maybe he needs to ask if he's ready to meet God because it sounds like that's a really real possibility are we are you ready to meet God Jesus in another place says what does a prophet a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul a part of the bottom line of this parable is that if we settle for anything less than a rich relationship with God, we're fools. Do you have a rich relationship with God? Do you know him personally? We'd love to talk to you about that if you don't. If you do, then the other part of the bottom line in this parable is don't serve stuff. Serve God and manage, maybe I should have said, his stuff for his glory. Let's pray. Father, you have blessed me. You have blessed most of my brothers and sisters in this room and those watching in so many ways. Spiritual blessings beyond what we can claim and count, but material blessings. Lord, compared to most of the rest of the world and most of human history, even those of us who don't have a lot are rich. Help us not to be like the rich fool. Help us never to consider what you've entrusted to us to be ours. Don't allow our possessions to possess us. Help us to hold them with open hands, to give to you and to others as you call us and lead us to do. Help us as individuals and as a church to be faithful and trusted stewards for your glory. We pray this in our Savior's name.